You are listening to the Macro Trading Floor. This episode is brought to you by Saxo Bank. Welcome to a new episode of the Macro Trading Floor. This is the most actionable macro podcast out there. I'm Andreas Steno. And this is Alfonso Peccatiello. Hey guys, this is a new week and a new big report coming, this time from the US. Um, the CPI report we're recording on the 10th of August, 2022. CPI fresh off the presses, Andreas. And surprise, surprise, it's actually lower than expectations. And it's lower than expectations across the board. CPI month on month, 0% headline and core month on month, 0.3% both below prior month and way below expectations. I think none of the Bloomberg survey uh, economists, actually probably one only, had gotten the 0.3% the slowdown in core month to month. So definitely a dovish surprise. What do we make of that? I mean, first of all, I can understand why no one dares to call the peak anymore because you, you've basically been bullied throughout uh, Q, Q2 and, and the early parts of Q3 uh, if you called the peak. So um, I guess that makes sense in, in, in that context. Uh, but to, to take a serious note here, I think it's quite interesting uh, because this could turn around the market psychology, at least so short term. Um uh, we know that as soon as the market sort of sniffs out a new trend, it's it's starting to price in uh, basically a change of regime at least short term, uh, and this could be quite a material game changer for for, for quite a few assets um, if this is really the peak. Uh, this week we received um, the uh, new survey among uh, SMEs in in the US, uh, and if you look at the price plans of the SMEs then I feel fairly comfortable saying now that the peak is in and we will see quite a substantial slowdown in at least good pricing over the course of the autumn. You heard Mr. Steno Larsen, the peak in inflation is here, guys. You know what to do now. Bet on the exact opposite. No, just, <laughs> kid just kidding, Andreas. Uh, look, talking about the report, um, what I found interesting is that the rent of primary residence was also down from a momentum perspective. So it was 0.7% last month, it's 0.6% now. Uh, services inflation, X energy, also the month-on-month -month pace has sort of peaked. So you can see that thing where at least looking at this single report, you can argue that the momentum of inflation at least stopped accelerating because that was the case for seven months in a row now. And the composition of inflation is also slightly more friendly towards policymakers. You can make this assessment. I think it's a very fair one. And you combine this with the labor market report from uh, last Wednesday which was on the surface extremely, last Friday, sorry, which was on the surface extremely strong. If you look into the details and the nuances and the statistical adjustments and the household survey and the part-time against full-time and all of that, it is less strong than it seems, but still you can argue a decent labor market report to be seven months through a very, very tight financial condition cycle. And so what's going to happen now probably is that we price a little bit of a Goldilocks. And now, of course, I look at you like, Alpha, you're nuts. I mean, what Goldilocks are you talking about? But what I learned is that rather than final outcome, markets are very good at pricing probabilistic scenarios, base cases ahead. And right now, because of the latest prints, they will be pricing a higher probability that after all, a soft lending isn't unachievable. And so you see tech stocks leading, crypto rallying, everything which has been buttered down over the last six months actually start to rally again. The curve steepens back, the dollar weakens, credit spreads tight, and Goldilocks, basically. So I got to ask you, Andreas, after you told me that the peak in inflation is in, 
would you also tell me that we need to buy Goldilocks asset allocation? <laughs> I think that's too early. Um, I mean, one thing is that once the peak is in an inflation historically, it's usually a pretty decent timing to buy risk assets in general. But I think this cycle is different um, since the reason why inflation is peaking now is that the growth cycle is falling apart. And let me emphasize that. That's the reason why inflation is down this month. Um, the overall driver of this inflation report is the commodity market still. Um, even though there are spillovers to other areas of these uh, of the um, CPI report. But if you look at the commodity market, it's basically screaming that activity is going south. Uh, and by the end of the day, it's usually not the timing to just load up on everything risky if the growth cycle is falling apart. At least we need the central banks to admit to that before we really get the signal to buy everything with an arm and a leg. So false flag, folks. <laughs> I tend to stick with relative value trades, Andreas. Long the Nasdaq, short the Russell, for instance, when you capture some of the tailwinds of some of the repricing we're talking about, but you don't go all in in a growth cycle, an earnings growth cycle that just doesn't exist. The momentum of inflation decelerates because the momentum of growth has, de has decelerated or actually, you know, decelerated very hard. That's what's happening right now. I think I subscribe to that thesis. Interestingly, the euro dollar curve, or actually I should say the OIS forward curve, is uh, pretty much unchanged in its strong opinion that the hiking cycle from the Fed will stop in February, March next year. And when the bond market in OIS prices such an aggressive easing cycle straight away after such an aggressive hiking cycle in history, it has always been right over the last 35 years. So it was right in 1998, right in 2001, right in 2008, right in 2019. Now, obviously, this time the Fed pivot will be much more complicated than before, because if we print 0% inflation for four months in a row still on top of this one, we'll still end the year at 6.3% year-on-year inflation, which is not exactly fertile ground for a Fed pivot, I would say. <laughs> so you're right, Andreas, I think. There are more nuances here to uh, to consider. And talking about nuances, uh, the, the inflation situation in the US is not exactly the same as in Europe, right? And I know you have some opinions on that. Well, I, I've noted this pattern that uh, it seems as if inflation lacks in Europe compared to the US. Uh, and if we look at some of the underlying measures of inflation in, in Europe, I'm much less convinced that we will get back to lower levels in the very short term in Europe compared to in the US. Uh, one reason being that the electricity situation is much more scarce in, in, in Europe compared to uh, the US. If you look at futures pricing, of uh, the electricity situation in, in Europe. Um, they basically expect uh, the spot price of electricity to peak somewhere through this winter uh, at much, 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 much higher levels than the spot price today. Let me just emphasize that. Uh, so if that comes true, that will obviously uh, follow through to the CPI uh, as well. Uh, so that's at least one way um, that uh, the euro area inflation could sort of decouple from the US inflation. And that leads me to the question whether the ECB could uh, keep hiking longer than the Federal Reserve. That's essentially partly what the market is telling us, or at least the market is telling us that the ECB will not cut immediately after the Federal Reserve will start cutting. Uh, and I think that divergence between 
the yield curve in the US and in Europe is quite interesting. I think ultimately, this is almost a bargain trade, if you ask me, because I mean, the ECB cannot uh, uphold the strong spread versus uh, the Federal Reserve in terms of policy rates. Um, not going to happen, but it could stay around for a while, that pricing. Uh, so I'm not sure the timing is, is, is right yet for that trade. So for the most sophisticated guys listening, um, euro dollar or software, uh, December 22, December 2023 boxed against Euriber, um, 2022, 2023, December, this relative value trade in the boxes between ECB pricing and Fed pricing in 2023, it's pretty interesting. It's looking very, very wide, historically speaking. I think it's an interesting relative value trade. Um, Andreas, the other thing I want to touch upon is uh, the liquidity cycle for a second. So everybody seems to have forgotten we're going to scale up QT. It's just, you know, it's under the radar. It's like, hey, I'm going to quote Powell now. It's like uh, watching paint dry or whatever he said last time, right? Uh, It's it's going to be on autopilot. It's going to be cool. Right. So um, when the Federal Reserve does QT, it shrinks its balance sheet. And it's very easy to understand the asset side of the balance sheet, right? I mean, they're not going to reinvest treasuries, all right? What happens on the liability side of the balance sheet of the Fed? It has to shrink, right? And the most aggressive side, to, way to shrink it when it comes to financial market liquidity is to reduce bank reserves. Now, the, Fed, the Federal Reserve liability side of the balance sheet is also constituted today by a large amount of reverse repos and TGA, the Treasury General Account. So if we look at the interaction of this liquidity story going forward, Unless the Federal Reserve is able, and, and the, the, the government as well, is able to tap the money sitting in the reverse repo or willing to do so, or otherwise do some tricks on the TGA, Andreas, we're looking at bank reserves tumbling like there's no tomorrow. And you teach me that that is not exactly supportive of risk assets, isn't it? <laughs> True. Um, I think one interesting takeaway here uh, in terms of the liquidity cycle is the link uh, to first of all M2, uh, so a, a broader money measure, uh, but s- secondly to uh, heavy duration stocks such as uh, the ones that Kathy Woods buys all the time, uh, and to crypto space, uh, because I essentially subscribe um, to the thesis that crypto is the perfect head, perfect hedge against the balance sheet side size of a central bank, but it's not a good hedge against inflation in consumer prices. Uh, And I think that thesis holds still. So for now, uh, I would actually argue that uh, there is a window of opportunity for crypto as a consequence of inflation coming down. Uh, It's a reverse inflation hedge, actually. Uh, And um, the actual true window of opportunity for tech stocks and crypto will arise once the liquidity cycle turns around again. And I think we are at least a few quarters away from uh, from that point in time. That leads me to um, something that I know that you look forward to, Alfonso, the um, macro slash crypto conference in Manhattan. What's, what's that all about? It's the Digital Asset Summit Conference organized by Blockworks, who hosts this podcast, by the way. Um, it's a it's the, the institutional conference trying to link the macro world and the crypto world together or the digital asset world together broadly. Uh, it's in New York, September 13th, 14th in Manhattan. Uh, there will be very interesting speakers, I would say, from Brent Johnson to Daniel DiMartino, Mike Green, even myself, I'm going to be there. We'll try to link the two worlds of macro and crypto together, try to talk about the interactions between asset classes 
And I think it could be quite an interesting conference to attend. Yeah, and you can get 20% off the tickets if you use the code MACRO. Uh, we will, of course, make sure to add the link to um, the details below on each and every podcast app on and on YouTube. But before we get to the guest of the week, Alfonso, uh, let's talk emerging markets for a second. We've been talking over and over about developed markets in this podcast. But I think it's time to look a bit into the emerging market space because I think there are some interesting moves um, going on. I've seen how uh, the Brazilian real has rebounded recently. Uh, the Mexican peso is also on the move. Uh, and I think that kind of makes sense given uh, the macro uh, environment that we are looking into, at least for now. Um, so um, shouldn't we introduce the guest of the week and um, get into the uh, emerging markets debate? Yeah, for the first time in a while, actually, we'll have somebody who's a true expert in emerging markets, and it's time to introduce the guest of the week. So guys, time to introduce the guest of the week at the macro trading floor. I'm talking about Nick Stadtmiller. He's the director of emerging market strategy at Medley Advisors. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Hi, great. Thanks. Nick, uh, You're obviously here to talk about emerging markets today, uh, but I wanted to start uh, with picking your brain on the current sentiment out there. You have a load of speaking partners among big hedge funds, etc. What's your assessment of the current sentiment, given all the debate that we've seen over the past couple of weeks on a potential soft landing? Well, one thing I would say is that I think there's a lot more uncertainty out there and the, the range of opinions I'm hearing, the range of views over how this is going to, to play out. Uh, You know, I think in, in Europe, the, the jury's kind of in uh, about that, you know, that there's going to be a pretty severe recession. But a lot of divergence in, you know, the, the future path of uh, the U.S. economy, uh, how much the Fed is ultimately going to hike, you know, where that takes the dollar, how the rates curve moves. I, I mean, just a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's really, you know, particularly in the emerging market side, It's really hurting sentiment there because it's very hard to get enthusiastic about this when you have such a strong dollar. I mean, it's pulled back a bit, but it's still, you know, pretty strong relative to where it was a few months ago. And, you know, with the curve so deeply inverted and, you know, with all these issues out there about a slowing global economy, it, it it's a really, I would say, particularly in emerging markets, it's a, a pretty bad sentiment overall. Yeah, Nick, and um, let's jump into what has actually happened uh, this week, which has moved markets pretty materially, which is a lower inflation number. So finally, in the US, we start to see some slowdown in inflation there. And I want to ask you, how do you use that input in your whole thought process? Well, I think the market reaction after the US inflation print was quite interesting. You got a, a big sell-off in the dollar and uh, you got bull steepening uh, in the US curve, which was actually, I would say, a Goldilocks moment for emerging markets because you got that pullback in the dollar, uh, which also helps for their inflation outlook because, of course, you know, if their currencies aren't weakening against the dollar, that means they're not importing so much inflation. But on the rate side, the idea that the Fed may not hike as much as people had feared because of this peak inflation hypothesis. At the same time, you know, 10-year, the 10-year yield isn't falling off a cliff, which would suggest, you know, that there's a global growth slowdown. That really is the Goldilocks for emerging markets. And to some extent, I think it takes uh, it takes some pressure off of them. You know, one of the things I've really worried about is you have these inflation problems in emerging markets. A lot of these central banks have hiked very aggressively 
in theory, they should be towards the end of their uh, hiking cycles because they're starting to worry about growth and they're starting to see inflation come down. But if the Fed keeps hiking, that's going to put pressure on interest rate differentials. And if the dollar continues to be strong, they need to defend their currencies. And then that puts these central banks in this very uncomfortable position of continuing to hike, even though they can see a huge slowdown or even a recession just a couple of quarters in the future. So if that trend continues that you see the dollar pulling back and that the curve starts to steepen up a bit in the US uh, and the front end is coming off, uh, the rates are coming off in the front end, you know, that could really be a turning point. But I'm just not convinced we're there because I think even if in peak inflation is correct, that hypothesis is correct, I think the next worry is going to be how sticky that inflation is. And I think the market might be a little bit optimistic on that front. Nick, uh, you obviously know everything about sticky inflation, having watched emerging markets over the past years. Um, so uh, let me allow you to be the advisor of the Federal Reserve before we move on to uh, emerging market central banks. Is it at all possible to kill the current inflation momentum without orchestrating a recession in the US? I think it will be very hard. Mm. The soft landing hypothesis requires a lot of things to go just perfectly. And there's even some pretty strong debate within the Fed right now as to whether it would be enough to, to get wage growth to come off uh, simply by reducing the number of openings as opposed to actually pushing the unemployment rate up. And uh, the, the evidence so far seems to suggest that that would be difficult. And ultimately, you know, the Fed has a dual mandate of both employment and uh, inflation. But at the same time, it, it seems to me that it would be extraordinarily difficult for the, the Fed to let inflation remain substantially above its target, um, you know, in sacrifice of the uh, to the employment goal. So ultimately, I think there's probably a choice to be made, and it's very hard for me to see that they don't come down on the side of getting inflation down, which means they've probably got to push unemployment up, which obviously means a weaker growth profile. So Nick, the next question I have for you uh, is about the dollar, because you are an emerging market uh, specialist um, amongst many other things, but you're very good at that. And the dollar is a very crucial variable for many emerging markets out there. So I want to get your view on the dollar. And most importantly, if you could explain as well how the dollar ties into um, the decision making and the uh, economies of these emerging markets that you're looking at. Well, I think, you know, the dollar is an often um, misunderstood creature because a lot of people use DXY, the dollar index as a proxy, which is 60 some percent euro dollar. So really, the DXY is just a proxy of, um, of where euro dollar is trading. And, and, you know, there are better indices, you know, trade weighted dollar, you know, broader indices, uh, the dollar against other uh, currencies. But in general, even if you look at euro dollar, that tends to be very highly correlated uh, to how the dollar performs against EM currencies. And ultimately, particularly in DM, uh, developed markets, uh, you know, the, the fate of the dollar is very closely interlinked with uh, with interest rate differentials. And if you take the Fed's word at face value, then the market is not pricing as an aggressive and sustained um, path of interest rate hikes as what the Fed are planning, which suggests to me that there could be some upside on the dollar. And like I said, that feeds into emerging market currencies because a big part of the short-term capital flows they get are some variant of the carry trade. 
And in order to attract those capital inflows, they need to keep a pretty substantial interest rate premium over what you get on U.S. cash or dollar cash. So I, I think, you know, a strong dollar, if the Fed end up doing what they do, uh, what they plan to do, what they say they plan to do, then you're going to have a higher path of interest rates in the U.S. than what the market expects, which puts upward pressure on the dollar, which ultimately means that emerging market central banks are probably going to have to be more hawkish than what they had planned. And they're going to face persistent currency weakness over the next several months. Nick, if we assume for a second that uh, your thesis is right, that the dollar could see further upside also against emerging market currencies, uh, which countries will be the relative winners and losers in emerging market space from such a scenario? Yeah, well, you know, one thing I pointed out at the beginning is that there's a lot of uncertainty here. And, you know, what I said about the dollar and the Fed is sort of kind of my base case working hypothesis, but I I spend more time sort of translating that hypothesis into what it means for EM than, you know, working out the mechanics on the DM side. But with so much uncertainty, you know, you could see a really big pullback in the dollar and you could see a complete capitulation in U.S. rates. And given that uncertainty, I think it's very hard to make directional bets in emerging markets and just, you know, go long or short the very high risk currencies. I think the way that you want to play that is to look for relative winners and losers, like you pointed out in the question. And I think really what you want to do is you want to focus on countries with stronger domestic fundamentals and, um, you know, a stronger balance of payments position and the ones that have, I would say, largely done, you know, the responsible heavy lifting uh, in terms of the monetary cycle. Uh, so, for example, in um, in Latin America, for example, I think uh, that Mexico can probably outperform currency wise over some of the others, particularly Brazil. And that story is, is partly a fiscal responsibility story. It's also a story of Mexico being more closely tied to the U.S. economy, which has been kind of the bright spot in developed markets. Um, but I think generally that's the trade to be in is to be long the higher quality, lower risk EM currencies against short some of the riskier ones. Yeah, this sort of resonates with me. I've been uh, over the last few months, rather few weeks, rather doubling in relative value trades and outright trades for exactly the same reason, Nick. But uh, let's talk, Andreas, shall we talk about emerging markets throughout the world a bit more specifically when it comes to regions? Because Nick, emerging markets means everything and nothing, right? I mean, what, what are emerging markets? They're very different in nature. I mean, do we want to call China an emerging market? Uh, then compare that to Mexico or to Hungary? I mean, how, how does that work, right? It's a completely different ballgame. So why don't we go macro geographical area uh, one from another and, and get your take on the main emerging markets within that area? Let's try this experiment. So let's say, let's start from Europe. So within Europe, let's say in Eastern Europe, there are a bunch of potentially, uh, we can call them emerging markets. What's your take there? Yeah, well, I mean, I can knock two of those off easily, Russia and Ukraine, which are countries I used to cover. <laughs> uh, Russia has become completely uninvestable and Ukraine went from a very interesting credit story to a distressed credit story pretty quickly. Um, so we can knock those out. Turkey, another country I cover very closely, is quite frankly a complete mess, but I expect them to muddle through without a serious crisis over the next year. And then we get to the very interesting ones, which are the CE3, uh, Poland, Czech, and Hungary. 
And yeah. there I see, uh, you know, you have very interesting currency stories, very interesting monetary policy stories. And these are countries that basically didn't move rates for years. And Poland even had forward guidance for years. We're not going to change rates for two or three years. And then COVID comes, you get this inflation shock, and then all of a sudden CE3 rates are in play. And what's interesting there is you've seen the Czechs going from initially being the most hawkish central bank in the region to being pretty much the most dovish. Um, and the Hungarians, quite surprisingly, have uh, have really stepped up in the inflation fight. They have the lowest inflation rate of those three countries, but by far the highest policy rate. And they've signaled that they're willing to do more uh, if inflation disappoints. Um, the problem with Hungary is even though I think they have the best monetary policy right now of those three, is they have the weakest fiscal position and politically, uh, and I think the politics is probably the most interesting aspect of this story, I think there's a lot of optimism that they're going to get the recovery funds from the EU that they've been negotiating. But quite frankly, uh, Prime Minister Orban has been spitting in Brussels' face uh, pretty consistently over the last couple of months, uh, cozying up to Putin, uh, sent his foreign minister to Moscow not too long ago to negotiate additional gas through the Turk Stream pipeline when there are serious concerns that Nord Stream might get cut off. And that means you know, a freezing winter for Germany and Poland. So I, I think the market is way too sanguine about Hungary getting the EU recovery funds. And I also think that the gas story is kind of a no win for Hungary. One, Hungary is much more dependent on gas uh, for its energy mix than Poland uh, and to a lesser extent to check the Czechs. And also Hungary is more dependent on Russian origin gas than those other countries. Uh, so they're potentially the most vulnerable to a cutoff of Nord Stream through the conventional supply routes. If Orban gets his way and he finds a, a second opening, uh, which I'm still a bit skeptical of because there's no way to get gas from Russia into Hungary without going through Ukraine or through EU territory, uh, through the pipelines. Uh, so, you know, there are several ways that the Europeans can put pressure on him. But even if he gets his way, I cannot imagine that's going to go unpunished. There's no way that Brussels is going to sit and enjoy watching Hungarians sitting at home with their thermostats cranked up while Germans and Poles and other Europeans are, are freezing. Uh, so I think it's kind of a no-win no situation for Orban. And then you add to this the fiscal problems they've had. And yes, they've done a lot of fiscal consolidation, increased taxes, reduced uh, paired the energy price caps. But that's going to come at the cost of growth. So I think, you know, Hungary is kind of sitting in this no-win situation right now. So I think Hungary, uh, the Hungarian foreign is, is likely to underperform uh, Poland and Czech by a lot here. Nick, before we move to uh, the next geographical region, uh, I would like you to elaborate a bit on the Turkish outlook as well. Um, as far as I can judge from uh, the official export numbers, it seems as if the Italians are exporting stuff to Turkey, and then the Turkey, uh, Turkish population is exporting that stuff to Russia. We've seen a skyrocketing export from, from Turkey to Russia over the past couple of months. Do you think that certain countries within the European Union use Turkey as sort of a loophole to circumvent sanctions versus Russia? I, I saw you, you posted this graph on social yeah. media, and I looked into this, and it, it's a very interesting hypothesis, and I <laughs> wouldn't be surprised at all if it's happening. It wouldn't shock me. 
But having taken a detailed look at this, I, I don't think it's quite as bad as what that graph suggests, because <laughs> <laughs> the way the graph, you see this plunge, you know, in uh, Italian uh, exports to Russia and then a pickup into to Turkey. And then you see, you know, yeah. Turkey's trade into Russia. I, I think what's going on there is you're seeing sort of a catch up uh, from a dip that you had previously around COVID and actually Italian exports to Turkey are picking up, but Turkey's imports globally are picking up because of this reckless, you know, frankly, very reckless uh, monetary policy that they're running and they have runaway domestic uh, loan growth. So of course there's a lot of imports. And if you just look at Turkey's global imports, you know, they've been growing by a lot. And I think, you know, the Turkey export to Russia story is really about the fact that Russia can't get a lot of food and other basic products that they need from other places. And, you know, Turkey uh, hasn't implemented any sanctions on its own against Russia. So it's really just sort of substitution. But I, you know, probably some of that is happening at the margin, but I don't think it's happening, you know, whole scale, uh, you know, in the scale of hundreds of millions of dollars a month or something. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a fair point, Nick. But the chart was... Uh eye-catching anyway, especially as we Italians always find ways, creative ways, let's say, to make sure that we can go around when when possible. So now let's move to a, a bit bigger emerging markets, shall we? Let's talk about the elephants in the room, at least when it comes to size. And that's going to be, well, of course, China first. So let's get your take on, on China for a second, maybe. Well, you know, I think zero COVID has been the biggest uh, sort of headwind for sentiment towards China, um, because a lot of people are worried that zero COVID is going to mean another round of massive lockdowns, uh, which would hamper activity. And at the same time, authorities have been, I would say, um, reticent in their uh, their willingness to to apply stimulus, uh, particularly on the monetary side. And uh, you know, if you read what uh, officials are saying, is they're willing to let credit growth plug along, but they don't want total societal financing, total credit growth in the economy to run away again because they are afraid about you know, accumulating bad assets, particularly given the headwinds that they have on the real estate side. Uh, but they are implementing quite a bit of infrastructure spending. And what's interesting about that, uh, that spending is my colleague who, whose full-time job is to cover China, he does it very well, uh, he tells me that the latest package of infrastructure spending in China is structured very differently than previous stimulus packages. And what they've done is they've doubled the uh, the minimum amount of that spending from the central government on infrastructure that needs to be spent on wages. So now it's 30%. And there are various other tweaks within uh, the infrastructure package that basically means that it's more orientated to stimulating domestic demand than it is to stimulating import demand of commodities. And so I, I think this is, uh, you know, it's interesting for China that you get this sort of gradual pickup. Um, you know, they're not going to, you know, have runaway growth in the second half that's going to make up for the disappointing first half to get, you know, the full year into the five, five and a half percent growth range. Um, but they're will, you know, they want to get sequential growth into that five, five and a half percent range. So it's a very sort of slow recovery for China, but, it, you know, an improvement when the rest of the world is probably slowing down. But the other side of this, you know, the implication for other emerging markets is a lot of these commodities countries, you know, places like countries in South America, South Africa, uh, who are very reliant on commodities uh, demand, 
I think a lot of policymakers there probably have these economic models where they have some proxy for you know Chinese GDP or industrial production or whatever, and they're using that in a model to back out what they think uh, their export de or demand for their exports, their commodities exports are. And I, I think there's room for disappointment there because, as I said, you know, it looks like this infrastructure project, uh, this plan is going to be much less commodities intensive than previous ones. So I, I think that the China growth story, the China recovery story is probably not going to have as much of a supportive impact on the rest of the EM complex as it has in the past. Nick, you very bluntly said that Russia is completely uninvestable at the moment. I perfectly agree with that view. But do you fear that China will become uninvestable should tensions increase around Taiwan? The China-Taiwan story is a, is a very complex one. And um, I, I've read a lot of very informed opinions. I've talked to several China experts. And you know, you ask five people and you get six answers on this one. <laughs> um, I, I think probably the balance of the evidence that I have heard, and I'm caveating this with, this is mm. my distillation of true experts in this. I'm not trying to wager an expert opinion on something I I, I know relatively little about compared to them. The balance of evidence to me suggests this is not a six month to two year risk, but if you get you know, between two and 10 years, it, it's something on the horizon. Mm. And the one thing I will say in terms of sentiment is that uh, a lot of, I've seen a lot of interest since Russia invaded Ukraine in people worrying about a similar scenario between China and Taiwan. And I think structurally, this is this is going to be a roadblock for them in terms of capital flows. I mean, you can get some tactical money, but I think there are a lot of investors out there who are not going to want to put a lot of eggs in the China basket, given that risk. And especially, you know, having seen what the consequences for Russia were. Right. Then I need to move Nick to uh, the other elephant, which is very little discussed in global macro. And I think that's probably not the right thing to do, which is India. So let's talk about India for a second. Do you have a particular stake there? Well, I think India and Southeast Asia in particular, uh, more generally, South Southeast Asia is really shaping up to be one of the, the global bright spots going into next year. I mean, if you look at all the growth forecasts, uh, they show accelerating growth uh, for this part of the world. And, you know, the RBI has been somewhat measured, but continues to fight inflation. So I, I think the the macro backdrop for that part of the world is a bit more constructive than what you have in EMEA or LATAM. Mm. And if we move to uh, Latin America, um, you hinted earlier that um, you kind of like the Mexican outlook a bit more compared to the Brazilian outlook. Could you please elaborate why? Yeah. Well, I think several things are, are going well for Mexico right now. Um, one of them, interestingly, is a side product of the tight labor markets in the United States is that this is actually filtered into Mexico's external account because a big source of foreign income for uh, for Mexico is workers remittances from the United States. And uh, they're on track to uh, to have a record year this year, just simply a product of the, uh, the very strong labor demand and wage growth that you've seen in the United States. So that's been going very well in their favor. Uh, Mexico has also done very well on the fiscal side. Uh, it's exercised a lot of responsibility, which frankly has been a bit of surprise uh, with AMLO as president on the, the leftist side. And there've been longstanding fears about fiscal irresponsibility. 
so I, I would say, you know, the Mexican outlook there looks pretty good. And also to the extent that they're supported by import demand from the U.S. Uh, the U.S. so far has held up pretty well when uh, when Europe and other places are slowing down pretty considerably. So overall, I see a, a bright spot. I would say the one risk factor here, though, is that there are some uh, trade disputes between the U.S. and Mexico uh, that are going on that will move kind of slowly. But there is a, a pretty high chance that uh, that Mexico could be uh, slapped with uh, additional tariffs. Um which would be a headwind, but I, I think that's something probably a few months down the road that we'll get some more clarity on. On the other hand, I would say for Brazil, a lot of things have been going pretty poorly for them for quite some time now. Um, <laughs> one of them very simply is the terms of trade. You know, you've had a massive, massive reduction in uh, commodities prices uh, since March, early April, uh, outside of the energy complex. And Brazil is very heavily reliant on iron and uh, soybeans and some other agricultural exports. Uh, so that's been weighing on Brazil's terms of trade, which has partly been reflected in uh, in the real. And then the other elephant in the room is uh, is politics. Uh, Bolsonaro has uh, you know has managed to to capture a lot of headlines uh, for some rather provocative takes on things. Mm -hmm. But from a purely economic perspective, you know, one of the big worries is that he um, has really been opening the fiscal taps uh, to try to salvage his chances of a re-election. And so you have a loosening fiscal account. And then right now, it seems like the base case is that Lula, his opponent, uh, former president, uh, will, will win the election in October. And if Lula comes in, it's not entirely clear. He may not be quite as irresponsible as everyone had suspected, but Lula himself has said that he doesn't need the fiscal caps and that he he wants them removed because he doesn't want that constraint. And you know, it's hard to trust a, a leftist leader who's saying, "Hey, I'm I'm responsible enough fiscally that I you know I don't need these constitutional constraints." Yeah. So even if Lula doesn't veer you know to the worst. Uh, just getting back into fiscal responsibility and, and, and debt sustainability, you know, might be a tough lift, uh, particularly in his first year in office. So I, I think it's going to be hard for the fiscal account to uh, uh, to improve that much over the next year after some pretty significant deterioration. Nick, I have to say that I'm pretty impressed by your ability to just discuss every emerging markets we throw at you. <laughs> I was about to ask you about Africa at this point, but I'm going to just skip that for uh, for a matter of time. And instead, I'm going to ask you what, I, what we ask all guests on the macro trading floor, which is ultimately, if you put together your macro thesis and the different emerging markets we discussed, what is the actionable macro trade you would like to put on? I think number one for me is uh, is going long the Polish Lati against the uh, the Hungarian forints, um, and it's largely a geopolitical play um, based on the assumption that uh, Orban's relationship with the EU is not going to get any better. He's not going to get the funds uh, that that he hopes to get, and um, but it's and then potentially you know the gas situation exacerbating that. But it's also a play on the fact that uh, you know Hungary, as I said, has uh, you know has some pretty strong fiscal challenges, and um, you know they they are starting to solve those, but that's going to come at the expense of growth. And Poland, on the other hand, has a somewhat larger uh, reliance on domestic demand. Um, all all these Central European economies are very ex export orientated, but Poland has a slightly larger uh, domestic uh, demand component to their economy. 
They've also had a bit of a fill up uh, on the domestic demand side from the the flow of Ukrainian refugees. Um, so yeah, that's that's a trade I like. <laughs> and you basically almost also hinted that uh, you like Mexico versus Brazil. Uh, so I guess that's uh, a play that could uh, also be, um, be be introduced in the FX space. But I wanted to to ask you about um, your thinking um, in terms of carry in these trades, because carry is obviously an important component when you watch uh, the price action in uh, foreign exchange in, in emerging market space. So please talk to this point on, on the carry between Hungary and Poland and uh, Brazil and Mexico. Yeah, well, unfortunately, both of the trades that uh, that I've suggested are negative carry. So on mm. uh, Poland Huff, I think it's about minus three percent, and uh, on uh, Mex Brazil, it's about four and a half percent against you. Mm. Um, but I, I would say a couple of things in favor of negative carry trades in this context, which of course you know it, it is always a worry because the longer you hold the trade, even if it doesn't move, you're losing mm. money. One, I have a relatively short horizon on these things. I, I think these are things that play out by the end of the year, particularly in Poland, Huff, uh, Brazil, Mex, I, I think could play out, you know, kind of over the next uh, three months or so. Um, so a relatively short horizon. The other thing that I think works in your favor here is that Brazil has probably done hiking rates. They got to the peak of the cycle and Boston has signaled that they might do another 25 basis points or so, but they're probably done. Whereas Mexico has quite a bit to go, um, you know, I think it's quite possible they could do another 150, 175, maybe even 200. Okay. So the carry on Brazil Mex is is likely to shrink over the next couple of months. Uh, so it, the direction of travel is in your favor. And on Poland Huff, I think the market still has another, I think, 125, 150 basis points priced in uh, in Hungary uh, over the next uh, few months. Um, which they're likely to deliver given the fact that, uh, you know, they, they have been quite hawkish. And if inflation does, you know, prove stickier, then they're going to uh, probably going to have to raise rates a bit more. But I think Poland is underpriced here, or at the very least, there's not much room for disappointment um, because Klepensky, the governor of the, the central bank there, has basically said, we think inflation is going to peak somewhere, you know, in the autumn around August, uh, October or so. But if we're wrong, we're willing to hike more. Mm. Uh, and if you look where the market's pricing, there's there's hardly anything, maybe 25 basis points or so uh, of upside <clears throat> priced into Polish policy rates going forward. So I, I think that the the surprise element, again, is in Poland's favor. And you know, if my sticky inflation hypothesis proves correct, there's a good chance you get a bit more there. And that upside surprise on rates could give a boost to the, uh, the Polish Zloty in the process. Well, Nick, this has been a very interesting set of comments because when we look at carry trades, what always strikes me is that people tend to look at spot when they put it on. But in reality, if you want to hold the trade for three, six or 12 months, it's about the realized carry down the road. So it's about forwards that are priced in versus what will realize, which is exactly what you just highlighted. The other thing is, yeah, you pay a certain negative carry, that's okay. I mean, it's better to have a positive carry trade than a negative carry trade, Chetteris paribus, but it's about the volatility of the realized outcome that can, and that needs to be measured against the carry you pay. So I think from both angles, the trades you suggested are uh, pretty much looking okay from that front. Uh, in general, Nick, I'd like to uh, thank you for being here on the macro trading floor, having an emerging market expert talk to us instead of... Uh, you know, discussing the Fed and the ECB the whole time, basically in rates and equities has been has been a great pleasure. And I learned quite a lot from you. 
Nick, so I'd like to thank you very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. And I love the fact, Nick, that we managed to unpack the entire globe in 30 minutes. I don't think we've managed to do that before on the Macro Trading Floor. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Back at the Macro Trading Floor, Andreas, without our guest, which means we can uh, freely say whatever we want on his back. No, that's not what we do, but <laughs> it's <laughs> August 12th, 2022. Let's recap. We had Nick Studmiller here. Is um, an EM strategist for Medley Advisors and a very good guest, as you have had the chance to hear. Very knowledgeable in emerging markets. He has, uh, let's say, two trades. Uh, his biggest trade is to be long the Polish Sloty and short the Hungarian foreign. It's a relative, relative value trade in uh, emerging markets, Europe, basically. And the other one is a, another relative value trade, this time in Latin America, where he wants to be long the Mexican peso and short the Brazilian real. Both trades carry negative. He's been very honest about it, but he's also explained that he thinks the carry could be different. The realized carry could be different than what's spot carry today. And also that the volatility in these pairs normally could actually play his way a bit faster than the negative carry can hit him on the back. So said that, Andreas, because you are born and raised in FX, I have to ask you first, what do you make of the trades and the macro story behind? First of all, Elf, it's, it's quite interesting that when we are late in the economic cycle with with a growth slowdown right about um all in all countries that we cover in this podcast the only thing that we can conclude is that we all like trades with a negative carry in such an environment don't we i mean we've been talking about negative carry trades for a month in a row now um but if we look at his um, reasoning behind going long Poland versus Hungary, uh, I think the main argument is basically that Viktor Orban is um, basically uh, following a very dangerous path when it comes to his geopolitical strategy of pursuing a relationship to Moscow at the same time as being a member of the European Union. And I think that's a very feasible argument, um, given that this winter, if we have energy shortages, uh, natural gas shortages, then uh, I don't think you should uh, expect like um, a strong brotherhood within the European Union if you start uh, meddling around with uh, the Russians uh, on your own behalf, basically. Uh, so this is a good geopolitical trade, I think, uh, but it's very much based on, on geopolitics and, of course, also a layer of, uh, of interest rate differentials um, being mispriced, uh, according to Nick. So I, I perfectly buy that. If we look at the positioning, um, then I also think that he's spot on that there's a bigger chance that the Polish slot could surprise from a positioning perspective relative to the friend. And that actually goes for the trade in, um, in Brazil versus Mexico uh, as well. So long Mexican peso versus short Brazilian real, because um, if we look at the positioning in the Brazilian real, it's been extremely positive this year. Um, we have seen a moderation of the longs in the Brazilian real uh, as a consequence of the landslide in, um, in commodity space over summer. Uh, but it's still um, a kind of positive uh, positioning in, in Brazilian reals compared to basically what we see across the globe with this growth slowdown. Uh, so I think from a positioning perspective, he, he also has some tailwind uh, when it comes to that relative value trade. So by the end of the day, I actually like uh, the reasoning behind both of the trades. Um, What's tricky here is whether uh, the timing is right to enter negative carry trades, um, given that we have this soft landing chatter around in markets, because the whole debate on a soft landing is negative for the for the two trades he suggested. Both of them, I would actually argue, would fare um, 
better in a landslide in growth rather than a soft landing. So Andreas, we discussed many times here at the Micro Trading Floor that getting commodities right would mean getting macro right. Hmm. And now it's not only that, but also you should get the soft landing story right <laughs> if you want to get the overall macro right, <laughs> not only that. So what we are seeing across the board is markets repricing a soft landing to a much higher odds than before. But not only that, I think markets are repricing a quite a re-rating up of growth on top of a soft landing. Because a soft landing would be defined as economic growth coming down towards trend or slightly below trend, while inflation comes down quick at target. That's the definition of a soft landing, right? And the Federal Reserve accompanying that process in the most gentle possible way. Now, if I look at what's happening across asset classes, I see that cyclicals, EM, uh, everything that has to do with strong economic activity is overperforming the quality stuff, which normally tends to proceed from a beta performance in this kind of, of, of processes in a normal soft lending process, let's say, uh, repricing process. And on top of it, I see that real interest rates are going up. Now, interestingly, real interest rates going up and equities keep on rallying means two things. Either you're compressing risk premium to levels that are pretty low because you know the Federal Reserve is going to just manage this perfectly. There is no reason to price higher risk premia or alternatively, because you think economic growth will surprise to the upside meaningfully and therefore real, real rates can be higher and nothing is going to be out of balance in the, in the economy and in financial markets. Now, I think this is an interesting setup, but uh, you really need to get the soft lending story right and the Federal Reserve reaction to, to the data uh, as well. What do you think? Um, I have a really important remark to make in terms of that soft landing, because if you look at the track record of the yield curve, first of all, then it's usually a bad idea to bet against a very inverted yield curve, because it's usually a signal that we won't get a soft landing when the yield curve is extremely inverted, I'd say. Secondly, if you look at the past 13 attempts to run a hiking cycle without killing the economy, then... I think the Fed has managed to uh, orchestrate a recession in 10 out of those 13 attempts. So they only have three instances of soft landings uh, and the latest being um, in the early 90s. So, I mean, good luck betting on a soft landing. I personally wouldn't, um, which is my main argument uh, <laughs> against um, the, the whole idea that we get a soft landing. Well, Andreas, don't worry. If you look at the... 18 months, three months against three months or whatever other curve that Powell decided to make up to uh, come up with uh, with a curve which was still sloping positive to say <laughs> the curve was not inverted. We can always make up another one and say it's not inverted yet. But now on, on a serious note, if you're assigning higher probability of a soft landing and if you're pricing implied volatility across asset classes to come down, then having negative carry trades on the book is not going to work. And we're seeing all the negative carry trades getting slammed on their back big times. You start from curve flatteners, the negative carry, and the curve is steepening back. You look at, you know, being short credit spreads and get, getting completely slammed, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So this is a quite a, a repricing of a soft landing, but there is an additional layer on top of it, which goes into the re-rating higher of growth, which I tend to be a little bit more skeptical about. I, I think one um, important note in terms of growth, um, we had a so-called technical recession in the US in the first half of the year, but we had very strong nominal growth. It was just a matter of inflation basically outpacing the nominal growth level. If we look at Q3, we could actually get a decent growth number as a consequence of inflation slowing a bit, but still re relatively strong nominal growth. But I think the next shoe to drop is that nominal growth will suffer yeah 
big time in Q4, no matter what inflation does. Um, and therefore, I'm still in the camp that this is not, not a soft landing. But for Q3, the market is basically allowed to, to party like there's no tomorrow due to this rebound um, in, um, in nominal growth relative to inflation. Pretty much the case, Andreas. But uh, going back to the trade that Nick discussed and to the negative carry version of the FX relative value trades he discussed, right? I mean, those tend to be negative carry, but more rather than being against a soft landing, those are negative carry because of geopolitics and because mm. of forwards being priced in a different interpretation of different central banks across jurisdictions. So that version of a negative carry trade sometimes can be there for, uh, for a different reason, I think. Mm. And, uh, you know, when, when you want to in general put up these effects trades, one of the things that people will be wondering about will be how the heck do I do that? Right. Yeah. So, uh, as we said at the very beginning of the, of the podcast, uh, Saxo Bank is now a sponsor of the macro trading floor. Uh, they offer quite a pretty unparalleled market coverage across FX, across crypto, basically all other asset classes as well, Andreas. Yeah. And moreover, they basically provide free uh, currency sub accounts as well. Uh, and uh, I'd argue also competitive interest rates on uh, on deposits in local currencies. Um, mm. So um, I guess um, that's one way of implementing it, looking at um, at local deposits uh, or, or currency sub accounts. Uh, if you want to learn more about Saxo Bank, then um, uh, you should go to go to dot Saxo slash macro FX. We'll put the uh, link in the description of the podcast as well, of course. Yeah. So one way to do that, of course, is to do that uh, via um, FX accounts in general, future accounts. Um, and I don't think there are a lot of easy ways to proxy that rather than do that literally by an FX trade, Andreas. I, although I know that you have a particular idea yes. or opinion about Poland, especially. Yes. Um, so I've had a look at uh, the ETF called EPOL. So it's an iShares um, ETF uh, covering the MSCI Poland uh, index. Um, and, and usually um, I'd say that Poland is a very easy case to understand from a macro perspective, since it's basically Germany times one and a half in both directions. Um, and the reason is that the German industry and the Polish industry are very interlinked uh, from an economic perspective, uh, but the Polish um, sort of risk perception is bigger than the German risk perception for a whole bunch of reasons that Nick also went through. Um, so what you need... Um, in terms of being bullish on, on, on Poland, is a slight positive surprise to the German outlook compared to what's priced into markets right now. And I've been pondering all week whether to turn around on my uh, shorts in euro versus dollar, since I kind of get the feeling that right about every single player out there has concluded that Germany is in a huge mess, mess this winter. So who's left to sell Europe? I don't really find anyone being upbeat on Europe. And that's a good contrarian signal. Um, the question is whether you dare to enter this trade ahead of what is probably a messy winter in Europe. But if it's already priced into markets, then I guess there is a chance, <laughs> to quote Jim Carrey, that you could actually gain quite a lot from, from such a view. So I'm slowly but surely dipping my toes into more positive views um, on Europe. And one way of expressing such a view with a high beta is to go along the EPOL, so the MCI Polish ETF. Um, I'm considering it myself. Haven't entered, but um, it's on my watch list. 
I really like the perspective here, Andreas, which is that when you look at the trade and you look at the risk reward ahead of you, you're not looking you know, at just a blank sheet. You're looking at your subjective probabilities against what's mm. priced in by markets at any point in time. That's your starting point. Mm. And as you were looking at, uh, for example, forward electricity prices in Germany or France, I mean, I don't know what else do we need to price forward than that, a complete blackout or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think French electricity futures for December, they're priced at above 2,000 euros per megawatt hour. Um, and I mean, the usual pricing would be, I don't know, 20 or 50 euros. So it, it's like one or 2,000 X. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just crazy. Uh, and uh, people within the electricity business tells me that uh, it's a reflection of people fearing a blackout. So we probably need the blackout to really be negatively disappointed by now if we don't get a blackout, then prices would likely moderate, being a positive story compared to the current sentiment in Europe. Well, the other thing that impressed me the most was your huge, was actually bigger than Trump's huge. Huge. So huge. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough for today, Andreas. I would like to thank everybody listening to Andreas and I ranting, especially mm. in the intro and in the outro, because Nick Stadmiller, the guest, mm. was exceptional today, I believe. And uh, thank you guys for all the support. If you want to continue supporting us, feel free to spread mm. the word about the macro trading floor, rate us on all podcast apps or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to go to the uh, Digital Asset Summit, you can find the uh, discount code below in the uh, description. And uh, you also find the link to, uh, to Saxo Bank in the description. I'm Andreas Steno. I'm Alfonso Peccatiello. I see you guys next uh, Sunday. <laughs>